Hello there and welcome to the Every Ounce Podcast. Here we talk all things mental health, wellness, and resilience. I'm your host Lexi and I am determined to bring you a one-stop shop for all things related to mental might. Join us for talks about naps and fruit snacks to the most real and raw conversations of life. This is where you will find community, validation, and most importantly, strength. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I am super excited to introduce to you one of my favorites. She's a podcast host herself over at She Persisted Podcast. She's a big advocate for mental health and educates her followers on DBT skills. I definitely owe her for all the help that she's given me by answering all 10,000 of my questions for setting up this podcast. I am here with Sadie Sutton. Welcome to the podcast, Sadie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yes, it's so good to see. It's it's weird because now the roles are reversed. Like, yes. originally when we did this, you were the podcast host and I was the interviewee and mm-hmm. here we are backwards. So It's crazy to think about that because I remember we were both pretty small like accounts and like hadn't been doing this for like crazy long and I feel like we've kind of both grown like on like parallel journeys as far as sharing our stories and doing that kind of social media work. So it's really cool for sure. It's way fun. I'm so excited. I'm so glad that we connected on Instagram. Me too. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself, just who you are as a person, what you like to do, where you're from, that kind of jazz. Totally. So my name is Sadie. I'm a 17-year-old high school senior from the Bay Area. Yeah, I love to snowboard. I'm really into graphic design and social media. Um, So if I ever have any free time, I'm probably doing that or podcasting, editing, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm in the college application process right now, which is so stressful. Um, But starting to hear back from schools within the next couple of weeks. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much a little bit about me. Sweet. Well, we are super, super excited to have you here on the podcast. I kind of want to start with just telling us about your story. How did your whole mental health journey start and how did it end? I know you experienced a lot of like anxiety and depression along the way, but tell the listeners exactly what happened and, and the whole process of it. I started experiencing depression at a pretty young age, and it was something that really built over a longer period of time. It wasn't like I woke up one day and couldn't move and get out of bed. It was like slowly but surely, I started to just have worse and worse self-esteem. I started to isolate from other people because I wasn't feeling like heard or understood. And more than anything, I did not like what I was feeling. So I would avoid my emotions. I would bottle them up. And I was in complete denial that what I was experiencing required like attention or support or anything like that. So I was just really withdrawn and isolated from all of my friendships and relationships that I used to have and engage in. And so I went to the doctor and they're like, so you're very, very depressed. And for me, I think it's important to mention I was 12 or 13 at this point. So I'd been slowly building this depression over years. And I, when you're a kid, you don't really remember when you're growing up a whole lot. So it was very easy for me to sink into that mindset of I've always been depressed and therefore I'm always going to be depressed because I didn't remember what it felt Mm -hmm. like to be happy Mm -hmm. and not struggling. And so from that beginning point, I really didn't believe that things would change for me. At first, I just didn't realize that what was going on was depression. And then I was convinced that that depression would last forever. And I now know that that depression was a result of these really 
I don't want to say negative, but these core beliefs that I didn't deserve to be loved and that I wouldn't ever be good enough for my parents. And then again, that really um, instrumental belief that I didn't, that treatment wouldn't work for me. And I was just destined to be depressed forever. Right. So within the next year and a half, maybe two years, I did a lot of different outpatient interventions, whether that was group therapy with other teenagers, days at the hospital, doing individual therapy, doing family therapy, all these different types of therapies and treatments that you can do at home. And my school was somewhat disrupted. I would leave early to go to these intensive outpatient programs. I would be at the hospital for different periods of time, but I was still living at home and I was still able for the most part to carry on with my life. Mm -hmm. Though the majority of my day was filled with this severe depression, severe anxiety, and a lot of suffering. But on the outside, life still looked pretty, pretty similar. So going into my freshman year of high school, I'd been in and out of the hospital three or four times for a variety of things. First time being just really severe depression. And I remember after I was in the hospital the first time, I was so used to just being completely numb to this depression that I was feeling. And as soon as that kind of lifted a little bit and I had more people in my corner and I realized what was going on, the anxiety kind of took over. And so before it was like nothing was going on. I was so numb to every emotion and occurrence and just sad. And then after that point, my mind was always restless and going all over the place. And I was very fidgety. And that is when I started to develop more anxiety. And so the other times I was in the hospital, I was struggling with suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. Um, because again, I was really, really a sad kid. Like I didn't think my life would ever look different. And I knew that the reality I was living was one I hated so much. And mm -hmm. so going into my freshman year, I went to, actually it was halfway through my freshman year. I left school and I went to a residential program. So I actually moved across the country from California to Boston and I lived at the hospital there for four months and I did intensive DBT treatment. And so DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And if you ever heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a branch of that. And so the basic principles is that dialectics are a the main thing, and it's the idea that two seemingly opposite principles can be true at the same time. You can be severely suffering and not feel like anything will get better, and you can want to change. In an argument, both people can be right at the same time, and both of their experiences can be true and authentic and accurate. So that's kind of the baseline of DBT. These two really strong opposing factors can be can be true at the same time and that's really applicable to a lot of different parts of mental health and therapy and then the behavioral part is these changes that you're able to make and so it's this giant book of skills that they teach you in dbt and it's things like emotional regulation distress tolerance interpersonal effectiveness mindfulness all these skills that hopefully we know we know already and we can use to navigate life but when you're so sequestered in your own suffering you forget a lot of those skills and you get really accustomed to these ineffective ways of coping mm -hmm. so you learn from the ground up how to navigate life in a, in a healthy way and in the environment that you're given and so that's the behavioral part of it is you're making these changes from these maladaptive coping mechanisms or these extreme moments of depression anxiety etc and towards this what they call is your life worth living this life that you're working towards that is your your end goal so i did that for four months and for the first time in two years after doing those four months of treatment i was able to wake up in the morning and not immediately feel depressed i stopped wanting to end my life and i was able to understand my anxiety in a way that allowed me to cope with it i was able to say okay i'm having an anxious thought right now or i'm having an intrusive thought and this emotion i'm feeling is totally 
valid and real and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that this fear is realistic or accurate. And so like that self-validation and self-compassion and then being like, okay, how am I going to cope through this? Am I going to go on a walk? Am I going to listen to music? Am I going to tell someone that I need some support right now? Whatever it is. So that was those four months. And then after that point, I did a year and two months of treatment at a therapeutic boarding school. And that time was really dedicated to continuing to rewire those belief systems that I talked about. Because four months is, I did a lot of work, but as far as long-term changes, not necessarily sustainable unless I did another step. So the year after that was really just day after day reinforcing those new belief systems and strengthening those relationships and being in relationships where I could hold up those new belief systems that I was worthy of love and that I could not be depressed and that was a way that I could function and things like that. So I moved home after that and that's around when I started my podcast and since then I've been sharing other people's stories like Lexi's and sharing my own story and really just trying to offer support to teenagers and let them know that A, they're not alone and that other people have been there too, and B, that it doesn't have to be that way. Because again, I was so firm in the idea that my life had to look like depression and anxiety and suffering, and it doesn't have to be that way. So that's kind of the goal of my podcast. And yeah, that's kind of where life has taken me since then. Wow. Seriously, look at you go. I I feel like we could just end the podcast right right there. <laughs> we could just be like, okay, mic drop, we're done. <laughs> But, and, and I'm so glad that you touched on DBT because if I'm being 100% honest, I don't know as much about it as I would like to, especially studying psychology. And thank you so much for opening and being vulnerable to share your story. I think there's just so much power in sharing individual stories, even though nobody's story looks exactly the same, there's still so much that individuals can relate to that just gives so much hope and comfort and validation to whatever people are feeling along their own journey. So as far as DBT is concerned, do you have one of, like, what's one of your favorite DBT skills? I know that you share a lot of, like, I know you've shared, like, box breathing and stuff like that on your stories or on your account before, but what's one of your favorites that you could share with listeners right now? Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm constantly talking about DBT and it's like how I live my life kind of and DBT in itself is a short-term acute treatment so it's six to eight weeks of intensive skills education family therapy and individual therapy so it's a really short-term practice Mm -hmm. sometimes it's longer if you're doing it on an outpatient basis because you can't learn their skills so intensively right still it's not meant to be a long-term thing and yet these principles are so applicable to so many things even when you're not in that acute state of suffering that you can continue to use them for the rest of your life so i think it's a helpful thing to mention And you're like, oh, I haven't done DBT. And I think that's normal for a lot of people. It's probably a good thing because DBT is what is clinically shown to help people that are really depressed, really suicidal, really struggling with self-harming behaviors, maybe have a BPD diagnosis, like people that are really in a lot of pain. And so Mm -hmm. that being said, these skills can be really helpful for people that even aren't struggling with that, that level of suffering. So there's two skills that I always go back to whenever I'm talking about DBT because I feel like they're so applicable and they are my favorite and I use them the most out of anything. So one of them is called accumulating positives and it's part of the ABC scale, which is in the emotion regulation module. And this skill is about intentionally accumulating positive moments. So it's planning beforehand. Okay, today I'm going to make banana bread because that makes me really happy and that's something I enjoy doing. 
maybe it's okay I'm gonna read a book this week because I really have been missing out on reading and I mm -hmm. just really want to sit down with a good book and enjoy that or I'm going to call a friend tonight and spend that time talking to them and really just staying present in that moment and enjoying that relationship so it's being intentional beforehand it's not afterwards mm. being like oh that was a nice moment I enjoyed that that's also helpful but it's not the accumulating positive skill so that yeah, so when you get to this moment of depression or shame, whatever it is, that makes you get to that headspace of, I have nothing good in my life, like everything sucks. You're like, no, everything doesn't suck because I have X, Y, and Z that I've intentionally done within the past two weeks, and these things make me really happy. And so you're able to get out of that headspace. And also it just increases your mood when you do these things that you enjoy. But I really like how it can kind of switch that language when you are struggling. So that's the accumulating positive skill. The other skill that I talk about all the time and that I really enjoy is called opposite action. So opposite action is a skill you use when you're feeling an intensive emotion that necessarily isn't serving you. And those emotional urges aren't serving you and getting you towards your life worth living. So Say you're feeling really sad, you're feeling depressed, and your emotional urge is to stay in bed, to isolate, to not engage, and to procrastinate. So the opposite action skill would say, okay, this emotion is okay and valid and natural, and I'm going to do the opposite of this emotional urge. So instead of isolating and not engaging and avoiding my responsibilities, I'm going to get up out of bed and I'm going to go do those responsibilities. And it's proven that when we're staying busy and when we're getting outside, when we're engaging with people, depression decreases. So this opposite action skill is that first step that gets you to those behaviors because when we change our behaviors, we change our thoughts and we change our emotions. And so this works for things like anxiety too. When your urge is to avoid and not go towards whatever it is that's scaring you and not think about it, we get into exposure therapy. So doing the opposite of that urge to avoid and actually going into the situation. And once you're exposed to that, that level of fear on a smaller scale, that urge and that fear kind of decreases. So that's the opposite action skill. And of course, if you're someone that struggles with something like impulsivity in those moments when you're feeling extreme happiness, euphoria, whatever it is, you can also use the opposite action skill and be like, okay, my urge right now is telling me to go and scream and like do all this kind of stuff, whatever. And be like, okay. And this urge isn't serving me effectively. So what am I going to do to do the opposite of this? Maybe it's sitting in the moment and looking internally and really just sitting with that joy and enjoying that. So works in so many aspects of life, especially I like to think about it through like a school perspective. I am a chronic procrastinator and always avoiding things. So whenever I have that pop up, I can take okay, opposite action. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And a lot of the time, once you get into the swing of things or doing a behavior, it's much easier to continue doing it or you find you enjoy it, whatever it is. So it's really that first step that you can take to um, get out of that headspace. I love that. And thanks for giving listeners like a go-to thing that they can act on right now. Um, I particularly like the accumulating positive one. That reminds me of when I was in um, a lot of severe depression, even some suicidal ideation in my life. I remember thinking that like I didn't have anything to look forward to. And, but then when I really sat down and thought about it, I was like, okay, but in a couple months we're going on a vacation and I wanna go. And okay, next week I get to hang out with this friend or I'm super excited to make sugar cookies this winter or whatever it was, big or small. And so I made a list of things that I was looking forward to. And still to this day, I have a 
running list of those things just hanging in my room of things that I look forward to. And that's super similar to, to that kind of DBT skill. So that's something that I definitely can attest to and recommend as well. So you said that when you kind of got back from your residential boarding school, you, that's when you kind of started your podcast. What was it that really inspired you to start a podcast? Why did you want to start sharing your story and hearing other people's stories? What was the goal behind that? Yeah, so it's really a funny story. When I first got to that program in Boston, my parents and I, we flew across the country and we got there and we like sat down with the doctors and the therapists and we went through this whole thing where they were like, do you want to be here? And I was like, no, I don't want to be here. And they're like, well, you have to want to be here because if you're not here for yourself and this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went through that whole thing. And I remember I decided that I did see the wisdom in it and I did want to, for the first time, work on myself because I believed that they could help me get better. And I really did want that for myself. And so we went back, I asked my questions, like, okay, like, what does a typical day look like? Um, when can I talk to my parents? Like stuff like that. And mm-hmm. my dad was like, Sadie, you know, it would just be so great if you just like recorded your journey. Think of how many teens struggle with depression and anxiety. Like this would just be so powerful. And I was like, no. Um, he was like, can she just have a recording device here? And they're like, um, no, this is um, a hospital that goes against HIPAA. She could not have a recording device for privacy reasons. <laughs> and so I was like, dad, I'm not doing that. I was so embarrassed. I was literally mortified. And at that point, I truly believed that my parents were at the root of all of my problems. Because in my mind, the way I thought about it, I was like, okay, my parents have raised me. I've been depressed since I was a kid. So it must be their fault. And since them have evolved from that headspace, but at that time, I was like, anything you suggest is a bad idea. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not doing this. So a year and a half later, after I was nearing the end of my stay at the therapeutic boarding school, I remember going back to that beginning of my treatment when people were like, your life can look different. You can not be depressed for long periods of times and you can get better and you can really love life. So I was in this space and I was like, whoa, like this has happened. Like I'm not depressed. I look forward to things and I really truly do love my life. So because I was such a big proponent of the fact that I would never get better, I wanted to tell people that it was possible. And if it was possible for me, it was possible for anyone. And the other part of it was that I gained so many amazing skills and resources and met with so many amazing people during my therapy journey. And a lot of people don't get access to those resources. So I wanted to do my best to bring as many of those as possible to listeners and to an audience. So I started while I was at boarding school. I would beg my roommates to sit down with me and tell their stories and we'd talk about our mental health journeys and I started publishing those episodes and I had literally no listeners I told no one I was doing a podcast no one listened I think one week I had like seven total listeners for the entire week like no one listened to this podcast (laughs) and over time I I learned how to be effective at talking about my own story and being an interviewer and improving the quality of my episodes and editing and it just kind of went from there but yeah well your podcast is seriously on point like from you from the sound quality to like the aesthetic of your Instagram, like it's, Aww. it is all there. And I have to tell you that on my Spotify 2020 wrapped, yours was my most binged podcast. So Aww, that makes me <laughs> so happy. There you are. I'm still like, I'm like, do people really listen or? Well, like, I do. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, it's definitely been a learning curve. Like the first couple of episodes were terrible. I didn't know how to do Instagram. I didn't know how to do social media. Like it was just, it takes time and like, that's totally okay. Yeah. So, but it was definitely a learning curve for sure. 
Oh, for sure. And I've definitely experienced that. I mean, here on episode two, I still don't have 100% surety of how editing and all the behind the scenes and all the technology and how everything works. And I've seriously asked Sadie so many (laughs) questions. You guys have no idea. But so because you've experienced some anxiety and depression in your own life, what are some tips that you could give listeners for coping with anxiety or what advice could you give to someone that is currently struggling with depression? So I feel like the advice for depression and the advice for anxiety are polar opposites. So for anxiety, it comes from that that this stems from the emotion of fear. And a lot of the time there's that urge to avoid and there's that urge to run away from whatever it is that's scaring you, no matter how rational that fear is. Even if it's something that's going on in your head, you just want to like make those thoughts be quiet and go away. And if it's something you're anxious about that's coming up, you want to avoid that as much as possible. And what you really should do is do the opposite, which is go towards whatever it is that's scaring you. Maybe it's sitting in that that thought spiral and really getting curious about, okay, what is causing this? What are the beliefs that are leading me down this thing, this headspace of anxiety? And how can I shift that? And if it's something you're anxious about, like I hate singing. I hate karaoke. They used to do this thing when we were in treatment in Boston where you had a vulnerability group. And to push yourself outside your comfort zone, everyone would sing a karaoke song. And for most people, they're like, eh, fine, whatever. Like, this is not the worst thing. Hated it. I would make other people go up with me. I wouldn't even sing the song. I would get anxiety about what song I chose and which one <laughs> people would judge me. Not even, like, my voice is terrible. So, like, then that was, a whole, like, the worst thing ever. And yet, slowly exposing yourself to that experience of singing around people or choosing music around people it decreases that fear because when we withdraw and when we avoid those things, it totally increases the intensity of the emotion because there's so much unknown there and we build it up to be so much worse than it can be really in real life. And so as far as anxiety, really slowly exposure over time. In the moment though, things like box breathing, which is envisioning a box and inhaling, pausing, exhaling, pausing, and just continuing to do that box There's a DBT skill called the tip skill, and part of it is an ice dive. So putting your face in ice water, it actually lowers your blood pressure, not your blood pressure. It lowers your heart rate and your breathing rate by stimulating your mammalian diving reflex, which is in your vagus nerve. So you physically cannot maintain that level of physical distress when you're using that ice dive skill. Breathing is such a big one. Tapping, like alternating your hands really gets you to communicate across your brain instead of just being in one small part of your amygdala and being so activated. Self-soothing, all these things are really effective to bringing down that distress. And the, the key about anxiety skills is that they're meant to get you through the moment. They're not meant to get you through life. And it can be really tricky because when you're constantly using these anxiety skills, whether it's self-soothing, like self-soothing is great, but if you're only ever self-soothing, you're constantly in a headspace of avoidance. And avoidance in the short term can be really helpful to get you through that moment. But if all you ever do is avoiding, things just get worse and worse and worse and they Mm -hmm. pile up and then they kind of implode. And so, (laughs) yeah, yeah, so self-soothing, breathing, walking, doing things to calm yourself down in the moment are key. As far as depression, really the opposite of what you're feeling. So taking a walk, getting outside, listening to music. If you want to 
when you're in with anxiety, you want to avoid something, you want to go towards it and expose yourself to that. But if it's really bad, you want to avoid. Whereas depression, you almost always want to do the opposite of that emotional urge. It's staying in bed, isolating. It's really about getting outside, being active, staying busy. And that's the hardest thing to do. Like still to this day, whenever I'm like, I might work out, I'm like, no, (laughs) just don't want to. Or if I am like, oh, I definitely just don't want to get out of bed right now. Like it's really, really hard. And it's a lot easier to sit in that headspace of suffering and discomfort because that's what's familiar. Anything other than that, you don't really know what's going to happen and it could get worse. And so what is helpful though is community and interaction is really, really, really helpful for feeling depressed and isolated and alone. So leaning into your relationships, being busy is another really huge thing and it helps you when you're feeling productive. Yeah, those are really the two biggest things. I was going to say from a long-term perspective, but it's really just about having those relationships over a longer period of time and having that productivity and staying busy and having those things in your life worth living that you're working towards over a longer period of time. I I completely agree. As far as anxiety, I think for me, it's just like making sure I have those coping skills. I can, you know, tap into some yoga, I can take a shower, take a walk, take a nap, eat a snack, you know, whatever it is. And for me, when I struggled with depression, the number one thing for me was mental health medication. And like, if that is what you need, and you're struggling with clinical depression, then maybe that's something to look into. I don't think it's necessarily the answer for everyone or the answer for every situation. But like there, there is no shame in the pill game. Like if, if that works for you, then that works for you. I think it's interesting because I, that was something that worked for me as well when I was really severely struggling and it won't solve all your problems. It has to be in conjunction with therapy and intensive work and behavioral and lifestyle changes because a pill can only do so much as increasing your neurotransmitters or your, your mood in general, but unless you make changes in your life that will help kind of keep you on that path of getting out of your depression and in your depression recovery, things won't be sustainable or long-term or you won't see a difference. So it's really, it's a really a balance of both for sure. Right. And I think like just along with what you said, it's, it's a tool. I mean, it's not necessarily a cure, but it's just a tool to kind of help you get there. So yes, I absolutely loved in your first podcast episode that you have published now, how you made a decision to work on yourself. I absolutely love the way that you worded that. And I always say that it's important to have a desire to improve yourself, just like always having something to work on. It doesn't have to be something super unrealistic, like these toxic new year's resolutions or anything like that, but just some self-love, some self-care and some, some personal improvement. So why and how did you decide to work on yourself? Yeah. So I was really backed into a corner. I had tried lots of outpatient treatments at home at home and I got to Boston and we had this conversation where they were like, do you want to be here? And I was like, no, I don't. And they said, okay, that's okay. Like, that's totally fine. We cannot force you to be here. And this program is one of willingness and all the girls you see here, they've chosen to be here and they've chosen to work on themselves. And if you don't want to be here and you don't, you don't, this program doesn't seem like the right fit for you, that's okay. Your parents can send you to another program where they can just sign on the dotted line and you will be there no matter what. And that was really scary to me. I was like, I definitely wanted that control and that decision and that power over my treatment. So I didn't have a lot of options. I could have definitely stayed in that willful mindset and gone with what the other option was. But that that idea of having some control over my treatment was really appealing to me. 
And so when they explained that, they were like, okay, so here's the thing. To want to be here, that means seeing the wisdom in this treatment. And that means believing that we can help you and help support you through this because we know what we're doing. And DBT is backed by loads of clinical evidence and case studies and has a very low standard deviation among therapists. So it wasn't like, I'd be like this isn't going to work because there was the evidence saying that it would work. And so it was really just kind of letting go of being by myself and my suffering and letting other people take that on in a sense and trusting them to help me get through that. And so the other part of that was that I was choosing to believe in that treatment. And before that, I'd gone through the motions because my parents told me to go to therapy or I had to go to therapy to like do these things that I wanted to do. And so at this point, I was choosing to believe in them because I wanted that autonomy over my treatment. And I really did want to get better. And I was willing for the first time to to try and truly get better, which meant trusting other people, which was so scary to me. So that was really what working on myself looked like. And then from there, it was making these changes they would recommend or diving into what was making me uncomfortable or unpacking anxiety or doing the opposite of what I wanted to do. And so it was a lot of work from there, but that was really that pivotal change that I made at the beginning of that, that is how I'm here today. That's, that's just incredible. And I think that a lot of times we confuse like selfishness with self-care and there's working on yourself is not selfish um, or taking the time for yourself is not selfish. And I think it's important that when you do make a decision to work on yourself and you're actively working towards that, that is anything but selfish. That's actually so empowering for you and the people around you and ultimately just better in the end. When you're more emotionally stable and when you have your shit kind of figured out, for lack of a better term, you're able to support other people. So the more that you're able to take care of your own mental health, the more that you're able to give to others. So when you're practicing self-care, when you're working on your mental health, when you're prioritizing yourself, you're able to give more to school, to work, to your relationships, to your projects, whatever it is, you have more output because you've increased kind of your level of emotional stability. And so it definitely is crucial as far as other relationships and other part of your life. And I agree that it is anything but selfish because it has such positive effects for other people as well. Perfect. Is there any last advice specifically to youth maybe that are struggling with mental health or any last takeaways that you want to share before we kind of finish up the podcast? Yeah, um, talking to someone is the biggest thing. Again, that first time that I was like, this is bigger than me and I can't handle this and I need help. Everything from there was was downhill and it wasn't easy and it wasn't a smooth process, but there were people in my corner and it wasn't just me fighting this whole battle by myself and trying to hide it. People were there to support me and they I wasn't alone. People understood what was going on and they could relate. And so that's the biggest thing. And especially because there are younger listeners, I really do want to caution against going to friends and peers because all those, those are probably your strongest relationships and you have the least chance of kind of rejection or fear. It can be really difficult for other teenagers to support each other in terms of severe mental health. And so going to an adult you trust, maybe that's a teacher, a school counselor, um, a family friend, a therapist even, whatever, whoever it is that you can kind of lean on and reach out to to get that support is huge for sure. Support systems all the way. I mean, I definitely would not be where I am without my incredible support system, without my recovery team of like my doctors, my therapists, my dietitian, and as well as like my 
my super, super supportive friends and family. So Mm -hmm. I completely, I ditto, ditto that to what you just said. And last but not least, who is your dream podcast guest? (laughs) So funny enough, um, a couple months after I was at McLean, which was the program in Boston, Selena Gomez spent a couple months there in her own recovery. No way. So she has done extensive dialectical behavioral therapy and is a huge proponent of depression and anxiety recovery and mental health advocacy. She also brought on some of the McLean staff members onto her board of directors for her new beauty line, Rare Beauty. And so she is above all else my dream podcast guest because there's just so many parallels there as far as as far as her journey i look up to her so much as an artist a person but just that that shared affinity for dbt and experiencing depression and anxiety and having been at mclean like that's so crazy and cool to me so for sure dream that's in guest that's insane that would be so cool i will for sure download and play that episode a bunch of times oh yeah if i can ever get her on i'll keep you posted on that. yes come on selena please so cool. but, yeah dream podcast guest hands down without a question selena gomez <laughs> that's absolutely amazing Alrighty, well thanks for listening to this episode guys make sure to find sadie on she persisted podcast on instagram or you can visit she persistedpodcast.com for bonus content And with that, I thank you all for tuning in today. I hope Sadie and I have been able to provide you with some seeds of wisdom that you can apply to your own life. If you know someone that would benefit from this episode, please send them this podcast. And be sure to follow Sadie at She Persisted Podcast on Instagram and of course, at every ounce dot of strength. Until next time, may you find... Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember that this podcast, my Instagram account, or any other content on my website should not be used as a replacement for therapy or professional treatment. Eating disorders and mental health conditions are serious psychological and physiological illnesses that should be treated appropriately by licensed professionals. This space is simply for the purpose of community support, offering suggestions, giving hope, and encouraging recovery. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce of strength.